In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. There are a handful of competition shows that have defined the last few decades of TV, right? You know American Idol, The Bachelor, The Amazing Race. But of all the shows that have come and gone while we have sat on our couches watching them, not many have become cultural phenomena, quite like RuPaul's Drag Race. Our next guest was a winner of season five of the show. And since winning Drag Race, Shea Coulee has gone on to launch a successful music career of her own, even releasing an album last year called Eight. As of this week, Shay is set to embark on a tour called The Love Ball, which will feature original music and choreographed performances. Tom Power caught up with Shay Coulee in between rehearsal sessions for a conversation about life after Drag Race and started out by asking Shay what fans can expect to see on tour. Here's their conversation. I've spent like the last year uh, really focused on touring um, my own original music, which is, you know, can be kind of foreign territory for a lot of drag queens since most of us, our bread and butter is lip syncing. Um, but there are some really talented um, drag musicians and entertainers, singer songwriters out there. And so um, I love the art of collaboration. I love working with fellow queens. And um, so I decided to embark on this journey of putting together this review of really talented drag musicians. Uh, so it's going to be starring myself, Monet Exchange, Lux Noir London, Lala Ree, and Tace from uh, Drag Race UK. And um, it has been equal parts exciting and also like maddening having to pull in all these different perspectives to create a really unique production. But um, it's something that I'm really, really excited about and really proud of. And I cannot wait for the audiences to experience it. Maddening? Yes. I mean, I'm one of those people. Um, I drive myself crazy over my art a little bit and I can get really obsessive and a little type A. <laughs> so, you know, I obsess over details, you know, to to a fault sometimes. But like they say, the, the devil's in the details. That's where, you know, the magic happens. Let's just go back. So, like, I know you're from you're from um, uh, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, you were you were doing theater productions from way back when you were a kid. Oh my god! Yeah, I started at nine years old. Doing what kind of stuff? Um, doing musical theater, mostly community theater and school productions. And uh, you know, in the world of musical theater, oftentimes, especially when you're younger, there's just always a shortage of. Um, boys. So you get utilized a lot, especially if you're like a good dancer, especially if you're a good singer. So, you know, I loved 
the attention. And I and, and and outside of like sports where I was normally on the bench or picked last, see, this was the opposite. This is where I got to shine. So I I, I just really stuck with um performing and it's something that I just always loved and um, that's grown into being like, okay, well, how do I go about, um, directing a show or producing yeah. a show? Like, what is that like to kind of step off stage and see what it's like to contribute to a show and that nature? I, I'm always really curious about when the, when the key goes into the lock, you know what I mean? Like when, <laughs> when, when does the thing happen that makes the life and, and the art make sense for you, you know? You often hear folks talk about like, oh, I heard, you know, this, I heard Jimi Hendrix and all of a sudden, oh, everything made sense to me there, or, you know? Mm -hmm. When did you, given that I I first heard about you through your drag work, Mm -hmm. when did you first become aware of drag? Um, It's so funny because the same time that I became aware of drag was the same time I had kind of like that, key in the lock moment well i think the key was kind of into the lock just hadn't turned yet um it was i was four years old oh and um it was uh rupaul's supermodel of the world so you know we're going all the way back to 1993 um my oldest sister ayana was a big rupaul fan and i remember one day she just sat me down and I guess I remember this house. We had like a, our like living room was kind of like in the basement. It's like on the lower level. And um, I just remember her um, being like, oh my gosh, you're going to love this music video. And it was, it was playing. And I just remember sitting down and perceiving RuPaul. And I never seen a drag queen before, but I was just like, I didn't even know what a drag queen was. I just remember seeing RuPaul and being like, I see myself in that. That's why representation is so important. Like I had no idea what the journey would be years later and getting the opportunity to um, meet RuPaul and compete on RuPaul's Drag Race, which, you know, it, it is a cultural phenomenon that has completely changed my life in so many incredible ways. Um, but yeah, I was young when I saw drag for the first time and really it's something in there sparked. And I was just like, this is really, really amazing. So, so, so four, four years old, wild, Mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful. A lot of people don't have that moment. Well, actually a lot of people don't have that moment ever. (laughs) Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I think children, I mean, despite what some legislators and politicians um, may say, um, it can really be inspired by the art of drag. You know, RuPaul made everything feel so limitless and achievable and attainable. And that stayed with me, obviously, for forever. And it's just part of who I am now. And I don't know where I would be if I hadn't had that moment with my sister when I was four and immediately being like, wow, this is incredible. I have been sort of collecting these stories from from folks who have been on, on Drag Race and Drag Race Canada over the years. And I, um, I always, I, I'm always very curious about them because I find that the, the stories are either very funny or, or kind of powering or uh, uh, emotional. Tell me about the 
if you don't mind, the first performance that you remember, how did it, the first drag performance you did yourself, how did it go? <laughs> it was a uh, really affirming moment for me because um, <clears throat> this was um, July 17th, 2011. You remember the day, beautiful. Yeah, you know, because it really is burned in my memory. Um, and I had just graduated college and my friend Jeez Louise was putting together a show called Jeezy's Juke Joint, which was a vaudeville uh, burlesque and variety show that featured all black talent. Um, and so her and I, we had danced together as like dance partners and musicals, like, you know, in college before. And so she asked me to come and uh, be one of like the dancers, like, you know, in the chorus to like help for like opening number, blah, 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 blah. blah. I was like, yes, girl, I'm here to absolutely support you in whatever you want. Mm. And so uh, she accidentally sends me this email that was intended for the solo acts, asking for all the details, tech and everything for a solo act. And I was just like, oh my God, I was like, I don't know. I was like burlesque, like, but what? And so, um, I remember I just thought to myself, I was like, what if I did this thing in drag? That would be kind of gaggy. Like, that would be kind of sickening, right? And so, um, cut to the night of the show. Um, I believe it was at the Greenhouse Theater in Chicago. And, uh, you know, she's bringing me on. There's been tons of performances so far, you know, uh, mostly performed by cis women, you know, very like traditional, sexy, black burlesque entertainers, icons, everything. And so she's announcing me and she's like, okay, so our next performer is a drag queen. And this hush kind of fell over the audience because the majority of the audience was, were all just like aunties, like middle-aged, like black women from like their thirties to their fifties. And so you could tell, like, there was kind of like this record scratch where they were like, what is this about to be? And so, um, I love record number, scratch, by the way. It was, girl, it was that you could hear a pin drop. I was like, you know, and just when you're about to go on stage, too, that's kind of a crazy energy when you're like, oh my God, I don't think that they're going to like me at all. Yeah, I don't yeah. think they're going to feature this fantasy. And so, um, the song that I performed was uh, Sugar Mama by Beyonce. I came out in this like tuxedo jacket, shirt, like tie, hat, and like underneath it was like all the sparkly burlesque, like shimmery kind of fringy stuff. But like, um, it was very kind of like a, a, a Judy Garland and uh, Easter Day Parade, very Liza Minnelli, just like tuxedo fishnets, you know, legs, heels. Yeah, yeah. And so I hit the stage and like the light comes up and it's just my silhouette. And they took just like one look at those legs and those ladies went up. Like they were screaming and cheering so loud before the number even started. Like I could barely even hear the music start. And so, you know, I went through, I did my whole little routine, stripped down to nothing but like a G string and some like pasties. And like the moment that song stopped, I struck my like last little pose. They were like, on their feet, like wow. full on standing ovation. Like I have, ne- like up until that point, 
I had never received that much applause and love from an audience, you know, in all my years of doing theater, never, ever, 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 ever. Like, I mean, I remember stepping off the stage and like, you know, the seasoned burlesque girls were like, bitch, you better go. You better work. Like they are absolutely living. And I just like felt such a sense of like validation from that experience that I was just all like, girl. I think I should do drag. Like, I think they're kind of living for that. <laughs> that, that. Validation meaning like, hey, like, hey, I'm, I'm good at this or hey, like this fits me or hey, you know. I think it was like a combination of like, hey, I'm good at this. And like, hey, these people like to see this. Because yeah. like, let's be honest, like I, we can find a picture of me from there. It was not like I was crunchy, girl. Like, it was not. <laughs> I was not the most beautiful, polished queen. Like it was definitely diamond in the rough, like emphasis on rough. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> but it's like they could just still feel like the intent that was there. And like they just like absolutely loved it and and ate it up. I, I actually was talking to someone that was like, I, I really want to bring back that that number now, like having done drag for like 13 years, yeah. like let's let's have Shea Coulee now go and do that number and see how it looks. I think it would be kind of sickening. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Coming up, more of Tom's conversation with Shea Coulee. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Uh, I want to talk about music for you for a second. So uh, you spent a lot of time in Chicago uh, growing up. Um, you released the you meant, you mentioned you released the record of original music last year called Eight. So nineties R and B, disco, mm-hmm. and Chicago house, Chicago yeah. house music. How important is Chicago house and dance music to you as an artist? It's so incredibly important. Like I can't articulate well enough how much Chicago house and dance music really is like the heartbeat of the underground queer community. And um, just being able to grow up in the Chicago club scene and be amongst like really incredible DJs and producers, people like Derek Carter and Honey Dijon and Michael Serafini and Frankie Knuckles, rest in peace. Just so many, uh, the, the blessed Madonna, there's just so many incredible people who have like come up through the scene. And it just is the, the, the nightlife, the, the specifically, you know, house music and the spaces that house, house music. Yeah. It is such an escape. It's such, there's just such a divine energy that's there. And um, there's like one specific Sunday night party that we refer to as church um, queen at smart bar, because it just, you know, you feel it, it, you just feel so connected to something that feels so much 
higher than you in divine. And I think that's because house music borrows a lot of elements from gospel. And um, there's just something about it that just really, I feel like connects me to my roots, not only as like a queer person, but also as like a black person, as a Chicagoan, just so much of house music just really, really grounds me. And that's what I love about it. I mean, it makes sense then, because uh, you you said something really interesting earlier. You were talking about how like most drag queens make um, their relationship with with music is, is an intimate one, but it's largely lip syncing other, other people's music. And Mm -hmm. in, in this case, now I'm understanding a little bit, you 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 made your own version of that. You made your own musical creation. Yeah. yeah. I was just all like, you know, I could get on stage and lip sync to numbers on the radio, or I could put the work in and create like my own fantasies and, and see what it's like for me um, to be a recording artist. And what does that look like? What does that feel like? And um, it's definitely been a journey. I just, I, like I said before, when it comes to like rehearsals and everything, I love the work. Like I love to create things and to see how they can grow and, and, and develop and flourish in different ways. And music is one of the things that I really enjoy creating. It's a lot of fun. Uh, outside of music, you're playing the character Slug in the upcoming Marvel series, Ironheart. Does... So I, I know you come from like a theater background before drag, mm-hmm. but does your experience as a, like a winning drag queen, like a, a, a high level drag queen, prepare you for, like, is it in dialogue with a more conventional scripted role like this? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. I, Drag has the ability to morph into so many things. It's so multifaceted. So a lot of times, whenever I've dealt with any sort of um, situation where I'm dealing with something that's scripted, it's been normally in the context of RuPaul's Drag Race. It's comedy-based, you know, um, it's campy, it's slapstick, it's um, outrageous. So... The only difference really that I had uh, in this process and doing Marvel was finding out how to make things feel just so much more intimate. Um, Because also my, my experience comes from theater. So, you know, you have, you're trying to project to someone who is a spectator that's, you know, further away from you. Um, But when you're on set, it's like those cameras get in really close. And so you learn how to play things a little bit more intimate in order to, to catch the nuances of it because the camera picks up on all of that. So you really don't have to do much. I think that that's what I learned. Um, but before we go, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the the reason a lot of the folks listening to this would have come to know you and love you, which is RuPaul's Drag Race. As you mentioned, been on television for for 15 years, uh, as we talked about, a really incredible resonance in our, our culture. And we, we have Canada's Drag Race here in Canada now. And, yes. and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I uh, I got to talk to Guillermo del Toro one time, the the director. And we had, wow. and, and yeah. <laughs> well, you know, pretty, you know, we're, we're humming along here in Canada. Yes. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not all <laughs> hockey players showing up on the radio here. Uh, um, but we had Guillermo del Toro on and I said, give me one concrete thing that happens the day after you win best picture 
I get that it's, oh, it's validation for everything you've ever tried to do in your life and it's validation from your peers and all that. But like, I want to know one thing that actually changes the next day. I want to know what's different the next day. And he was like, well, more people are going to answer your phone calls. You know, more people are you know, like, you know, more, more people are calling you and more people are going to answer your phone calls. What's one concrete thing that changes after you win Drag Race? One concrete thing that changes after you win Drag Race. I would say a lot of times people think that you've kind of reached your ultimate goal and therefore, there's never going to be another struggle a day in your life. Uh, that it's all going to be roses from there on out. And but you're done. Um, you're done. You did it. Yeah, you did it. But what they don't realize is that mindset actually forces and makes you work that much harder. Um, because, you know, they feel like, okay, you've won. So what's next? And so then you're out here in the world with your individual resources, not World of Wonders resources who are on, you know, this show is being broadcast all over the world. And so it's just like, now, how are you going to top that? And it's like, um, baby, I'm just a little old me. <laughs> I'm just going to do my best to continue putting my work out there in the world. But absolutely, uh, it's still going to be a lot of work. There's still going to be hardships and um, people will still try and take advantage of you, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. Um, this yeah. industry is one that uh, is both sweet and sour, you know? And I try to always focus on the sweet, always, you know, focus on um, being grateful for all the good things that happen and then take the sour things as a lesson and remind myself that every lesson is a gift. So that's kind of like one of the ways that I, I continue to to push through in like this life beyond um, winning RuPaul's Drag Race. But it still is a lot of work. It's it's it's, it's more now than it ever has been. Well, uh, I'm I'm so glad to get a chance to talk to you. Congratulations on everything, and and, and go back to rehearsal. I don't want to keep you from rehearsal. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. I literally <laughs> am going to be doing that in uh, four minutes. <laughs> Every lesson is a gift. That's a good one. Uh, that was Tom Powers' conversation with the American drag queen, recording artist, and winner of season five of RuPaul's Drag Race, Shea Coulee. Her tour, The Love Ball, continues this week in Chicago, Atlanta, and New York City. Hey, we've got another episode of the podcast in your feed for you today, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it's with Adam Beach. Now, you hear a lot of artists say that they use their craft to help process tough stuff. I have never heard somebody make such a clear line, draw such a clear line between something that happened in their life and a role that they've played like Adam Beach. He's one of Canada's great actors and he tells this really moving story about how his breakout role helped him process losing his parents when he was just a kid. You can find Tom's conversation with Adam Beach in your feed right now. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.